Our scripture today is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I, therefore, a prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every word of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. In our scripture today, Paul is writing to congregations in and around Ephesus in a letter that he meant to be shared. He's reminding them of what they have in common as they try to function as the body of Christ on earth. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather in worship here today where we know we will hear your word to us, whether it comes through the prayer the music, the sermon, the giving of our gifts, the taking of Holy Communion, or conversation with our fellow Christians here, we know you wish to speak to us. Our ears are open and we are ready. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Reading the letters of Paul is always a little hard for me. I don't know if you have this experience yourself, but he writes such long sentences. 
by the time I'm at the end of one of his sentences, I've sometimes forgotten what the beginning was. So instead of just preaching on what I just read, I am going to take this in sections this morning. Paul spent the first half of the letter to the Ephesians, which you have not heard this morning, writing about God's plan for the world and the place of believers within that plan. Christ died for everyone. Christians are people who have responded to God's call on their lives. They've accepted his invitation to follow. The purpose of God's created order is unity in Christ, which is to say to place all things under the feet of Christ. The purpose of God's followers is to live in that unity, to proclaim it and to promote it. It is to have a Christian identity that transcends all of our other identities. Now, halfway through Ephesians, Paul is turning to what that might look like in practice. What does it mean for an individual to be part of the body of Christ? We think of ourselves as being a very individualistic society, and we are. I think it's fair to say that. But people in Paul's time weren't clones either. If you went to VBS this year, you heard about how much religious diversity there was in Ephesus and the area around it. People worshipped more than 50 different gods. There was a Jewish community there. At this point, Jews were already scattered all over the known world as the result of wars and political upheavals in Israel. There were people who worshipped Artemis of the Ephesians. She was the great goddess of fertility whose temple at Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. People worshipped the gods of Greece and Rome, and there was also worship of the Roman emperor. Most people believed you could worship as many gods as you wanted without being disloyal to any of them. Paul is writing to remind his congregations that they are not these people. They are people who have responded to the call of God in Christ. They are people who live by Christian values. And Paul reminds them of what those values are. He says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with each other in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility and its associated quality of mercy were not valued 
in the ancient world. People admired strength. Humility and mercy were seen as weaknesses and were even characterized as defects. These are not qualities, we're told, will lead to success in our world either. Strength of will, aggression, the ability to persuade, and even to manipulate, these are standard ways of getting ahead in the world, and they always have been. Paul is reminding his congregations and us that God sees things differently. Life isn't only about us and what we can achieve for ourselves. God asks us, what can we do for someone else? Christian values can literally be life-giving. About 200 years after Paul wrote to Ephesus, the Bishop of Rome wrote that his congregation was the source of support for 1,500 widows and others who needed assistance. At that time, none of these people was thought to deserve help from the imperial government. They had no one else to rely on. Why did Christians help them? Because Christ taught the qualities of mercy and compassion, bearing with one another in love. Christians helped other Christians and reached out beyond their faith boundaries to help others when they were able. Being a Christian didn't simply mean you stood on Christ's promises of a better life to come after death. It meant that Christians made life better for each other here and now. That is what Christ taught them to do. Christians are called to be like Christ. Paul's next words ask for unity in the church. This unity is founded on our understanding of the unity of God. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. In Ephesus, people would have believed in many spirits. There were good ones and bad ones. If you wanted blessing or favorable treatment, you called on the good spirits. If you wanted revenge or some other form of harm, you called on the bad spirits. Paul says no. There is one. There is one God, and all our prayers are directed to him. God's people have repented their sins. They have been washed clean in the waters of one baptism. All of our words and deeds are directed to the service of the one God who transcends everything else, who is powerful and present everywhere, who rules I don't think that when most of us look at the Christian church today, we would say it is one. We are split into countless denominations, 
On any given issue, Christian spokespeople advocate for a variety of different responses. Name a controversy, and it seems like we're on all sides of it, and that is just Methodists. We still believe that God is one, that there is unity in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. We still believe our goal is unity of purpose, that we are to transform the world by being and making disciples of Christ. But in Ephesus then and now in our times in Sun City, Arizona, and the larger world, unity is elusive. We know we're different from each other. How is unity going to happen? Samuel Rodriguez, a megachurch pastor in in Sacramento, has an interesting perspective. Hear what he has to say as he speaks about the day he became a Christian. On that day, I understood that I am not defined by my surroundings. I am defined by God's spirit inside of me. I recognize that I stand defined not by my past failures, but rather by his eternal forgiveness. Not by what I have been through, but rather by where I am going not by what others say about me, but by God's purpose inside of me. I arrived to the unshakable truth that I am not even defined by what I do for God. I am defined by what God already did for me. Jesus defines me. His love, mercy, grace, Righteousness, joy, peace, sacrifice, atonement, resurrection, and spirit define me. I am who I am, God's name for himself, the great I am. I am who I am says that I am. This definition of unity recognizes who we serve It doesn't mean we're not still different from each other, and it doesn't mean we're going to agree all the time. It does mean that as we continually commit ourselves to Christ, Christ is continually fitting and committing us to do his work in the world. Perhaps it's like working in different ways for the same boss. As baptized Christians, we belong to God as one body. And as a body, we receive gifts. How do we get these gifts? In this next section, Paul describes their origin. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended 
far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Bear with me. There's a lot there. Christ was born and lived on earth. He died to free us from the captivity of sin and death. His salvation is open to all people. In the traditional Apostles' Creed, we even state that after he died, Jesus descended into hell to offer salvation to those who lived before he did. But we also believe that after he was resurrected, Christ ascended to heaven, and from there he came fully into his power, filling all things. Jesus promised that he would send the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, to his disciples, which he did at Pentecost. And the Spirit is the source of our spiritual gifts. Got it? That might be another sermon, I realize that, but but not this morning. We're going to move on. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. This list of gifts describes important categories. We might have one gift. We might have several. It's also true that God might call us into service that requires gifts we don't have. That's when we say God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. But our gifts don't always have clear categories and divisions. The formation of our Christian characters is a gift in itself. That formation leads us into willingness to be of service, as in this other example from the early church. A disease believed to be smallpox spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire in the year 165. It was devastating. It's estimated to have killed between a quarter and a third of the entire population. Another plague swept through a century later. People knew the disease was contagious, but they didn't know how to cure it. They thought that isolating themselves from the sickness was their only hope. Those who could leave the crowded cities left, but not everyone could. Family members who were showing signs of sickness were put out of their homes. They were left on the streets with the dead and the dying, so those in the home who were not sick yet might survive. Not all, but many Christians acted differently. They stayed and nursed one another. 
those dreadful circumstances were a test of their values. Did they really love their neighbors? They did. Did they really believe in life beyond this life? They did. Some of those who helped became sick themselves and died, as you would expect. The early church saw them as martyrs for the faith. In his book, Plagues and Peoples, William McNeil has pointed out that even during plagues, simple nursing can make a huge difference in death rates. Providing food and water to people who are too weak to provide it for themselves can save many lives. Of course, no one in the early church had read his book. It hadn't been written yet. They learned by doing. Remaining present in such deadly conditions to perform these simple actions took a kind of faith that was peculiar at that time. It was a faith that spoke of a God who died for his people. It was a faith that encouraged people to value each other as they valued themselves. It was a faith that promised life beyond this life. It was the Christian faith. In our world today, there are many sources of assistance, medical and otherwise, but we will always need each other's help. Our challenge as Christians is to be alert to the people around us who need a hand and to offer ours. Which leads me to Paul's final words in this section of Ephesians But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. I recently read that speaking the truth in love is not just a way to engage each other in difficult conversation or a way to demonstrate Christian assertiveness. It's a lifestyle. Our every action speaks. But does our every action speak the truth in love? As Christians, this is our challenge. Growing up into Christ, he who is the head is the goal of a lifetime. That was true for the Christians that Paul was writing to. And it is still true for us today. Meeting the challenge of that growth requires the grace and guidance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fortunately, we're celebrating communion this morning. We believe that when we do this, Christ imparts his grace to us. Every person here is invited to the table. You don't have to be a United Methodist. You must only be willing to seek Christ. Join us as we remember him and receive his gifts of life. Amen.